the Supreme Court has weighed in, the abortion pill Mifepristone will remain widely available for now. But the legal saga isn't over yet. We'll hear more about what the court said and what comes next. For Saturday, April 22nd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. L.A. Mayor Karen Bass chats about her proposed budget, which includes hiring more LAPD officers. My strategy will never be just more police. That at the same time I'm saying we don't want our law enforcement to hemorrhage, we also want to build up the Office of Community Safety. And actor Danny Trejo on the lessons of cantina cooking. You have to celebrate food. You have to celebrate life, you know, and, uh, and food and life go together. First the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Sudanese army says it's begun helping foreign diplomats trapped by fighting to leave Sudan, though the State Department hasn't commented. The U.S. Embassy in Khartoum, though, is advising the estimated 16,000 private U.S. citizens to shelter in place and is telling them not to try to get to the embassy because it's not safe to travel. NPR's Jackie Northern reports they can't count on the U.S. government to bring them out. The State Department sent out travel advice over the past couple of weeks saying do not travel to Sudan or leave if you're already in the country. And uh, the State Department and the White House said Friday that it is not standard practice to evacuate civilians abroad, especially in these circumstances when they've been given plenty of warning. So American citizens currently in Sudan are on their own. In Paris, Jackie Northam. The violence erupted last weekend between the army and a paramilitary group fighting for control. More than 400 civilians have died. Hundreds more are injured. A widely used abortion pill remains available for now. The Supreme Court has blocked restrictions set by lower courts on mifepristone, meaning the drug will remain available in states where abortion is legal. Abortion providers are expressing relief, as Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports. Hours before the court's announcement on Friday evening, Dr. Audrey Lance of Northland Family Planning in Metro Detroit was talking with a patient. And that patient was terrified that Mifepristone might not be available for her appointment next week. And I just hate that my patients have to be put through this roller coaster. Um, It is just completely unfair. So I, I hope that my patient and many other patients are also feeling that relief that I'm feeling. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, patients from as far away as Texas and Florida have been coming to Michigan seeking legal abortions. For now, they will still be able to get the most effective form of medication abortion while this case plays out in federal court. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Twitter owner Elon Musk has removed restrictions on government-controlled propaganda accounts on the platform. NPR's Bobby Allen has more. At first, Musk called NPR, PBS, and the BBC state-affiliated. Then he changed it to state-funded. And now Musk says he has decided to scrap labels for media accounts altogether. What this means is that propaganda outlets in places like Russia and China will not be labeled at all, giving the accounts more reach on Twitter. Experts called the move worrisome, since state actors launching influence campaigns can now do so with a larger audience. Reached by email, Musk told NPR he arrived at the decision after seeking the advice of Walter Isaacson, an author writing a biography of Musk. A representative for Isaacson did not return a request for comment. Bobby Allen, NPR News. And that's after Musk initially labeled public media accounts with a government-aligned label. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. An Ashland mother and her 18-month-old daughter are trapped in Khartoum amid the raging violence in Sudan. Trillian Clifford hopes after U.S. Embassy staff are evacuated, the U.S. military will help her and the other trapped Americans. Clifford says she's been huddling in her apartment with her daughter for a week. Outside, they can hear gunfire. I know that it's very dangerous to go outside even to step outside your building. Certainly only a dire emergency. She also thinks a ceasefire might be an opportunity. We're all holding out to a little bit of hope that there may be other plans. We might be able to safely make our way out of the city. Clifford says she and the other Americans she works with in a local school desperately want to get home safely with their children. More now on the Supreme Court's order to keep the abortion drug Mifepristone available while the legal process continues. In Massachusetts, state leaders are emphasizing that surgical abortion and medication abortion remain legal here. Dr. Katie White in OBGYN at Boston Medical Center says she's pleased with the high court's order. WBUR support. White says she thinks it's important that she can still provide mifepristone when combined with another medication. It's considered one of the safest abortion options. Cities and towns celebrated Earth Day with community projects today. In Gloucester, people planted new trees. Others volunteered to clean up along the banks of the Charles River. In Boston, people fanned out across all of the city's neighborhoods to pick up trash. It's 5.05. In sports today, the Red Sox are away against the Brewers tonight. First pitch is at 7:10. In the forecast, the clouds will stick around for the rest of the day. Tonight, we'll see some showers likely, even a chance for some thunderstorms, highs in the mid-50s. And much of the same for Monday and Tuesday, showers with temperatures in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled the FDA-approved abortion pill mifepristone will remain widely available for now. The court blocked lower court rulings which banned or restricted the drug. The case is now back in the hands of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and will almost certainly end up back at the Supreme Court. Joining us to explain what happens next is Julie Rovner with KFF Health News. Julie, hi. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks. Uh, First, what did the Supreme Court ruling say? So the justices didn't rule on the case challenging the abortion pill itself. They were only asked to decide whether or not the drug could remain on the market while the case continues in the lower courts. And the justices, in a one-paragraph ruling, said it can stay on the market as it is now, at least until the merits of the case work their way back to the Supreme Court. That, of course, could be weeks or months from now. So even though it will be available for now, the ultimate fate of the pill is far from decided. Okay, so basically it's been sent back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has already ruled that the drug should remain on the market, but with more restrictions than are currently in place. Arguments are scheduled for May. What is the court likely to hear? 
So in 2016, the FDA began to relax some of the previous restrictions on how the drug can be prescribed and delivered. That was based on newer evidence demonstrating its safety and effectiveness. As of today, the abortion pill regimen is approved for terminating pregnancies up to 10 weeks. It was seven weeks before, and the agency relaxed a rule that the drug had to be taken in the physical presence of a doctor. Instead, it could be prescribed via telemedicine and sent through the mail. The FDA more recently said that mifepristone could also become available at some pharmacies, but that hasn't happened yet. So what the appeals court said is that the drug should stay on the market while the court case continues, but the FDA should reinstate all those restrictions that were in place in 2016. Drug experts say that in some ways that would be even worse than banning it altogether because the rules would be based on old science. And there's one big question mark. The generic version of mifepristone wasn't approved until 2019. So would that approval be canceled? I've talked to a lot of drug and legal experts this weekend. Nobody seems quite sure of anything. And there are also other lawsuits. Uh, 17 states where abortion is legal are suing to keep the pill on the market. And a federal judge uh, in Washington state has already ruled in their favor in that case. So this sounds uh, pretty complicated. It's very, very complicated. Not only are there two district court decisions that call for the FDA to take contradictory actions, but now the drug company that makes the generic version of the pill has filed its own lawsuit. GenBioPro, whose product is used in many more medication abortions than even the brand name drug, says it would suffer catastrophic harm if its 2019 approval is rescinded. Also, two big things to remember about this case and why it's not just about abortion. Mifepristone is also used to treat women who've had miscarriages. If it's not available, patients might need surgical procedures instead. And at the same time, the drug industry is terrified that if a judge with no scientific or medical training can overrule the findings of the FDA's expert, that could open the door to other lawsuits challenging other drugs that might be controversial, things like vaccines or medications to treat or prevent HIV. Okay. Julie Rovner with KFF Health News. Thanks so much, Julie. Thank you. Since she took office about four months ago, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass has had two big issues dominating her agenda, homelessness and public safety, both of which Angelinos have said are their top priorities for the new mayor by far. In her first State of the City address earlier this week, Bass laid out some bold proposals on both issues. She's asking the city council to let her spend an unprecedented $1.3 billion to address the city's huge homelessness crisis. She also wants to hire hundreds of new police to rebuild the Los Angeles Police Department, which has been hemorrhaging officers for years, and she wants to spend more money on anti-violence programs. I spoke with Mayor Karen Bass about her proposals for her city of just under 4 million people, and we began by discussing where that $1.3 billion to address homelessness would go. First of all, that money is in recognition of the magnitude of the problem. I mean, if you think about it, I told uh, the Biden administration and had an opportunity to meet with the president and basically said, if your goal, Mr. President, is to reduce homelessness in the United States by 25 percent, you can literally meet that goal in our city. Mm. Part of the money goes to our Inside Safe program, about $250 million. 
I do believe we can see a clear pathway forward, and that is to get people in interim housing. And what we have done over the last 130-some days is definitely dispelled the myth that people do not want to go inside. But, of course, a number of problems have emerged as a part of it. Number one, motel rooms cannot be sustained financially forever. And so now we want to purchase hotels. We want to purchase motels. And then, of course, we want to expedite housing because we don't want people to languish in motels just like we wouldn't want them to languish in the streets or on shelters. Mayor Bess, uh, I was looking at some of the figures. Uh, and a decade ago, the city of L.A. budgeted $10 million for homelessness. Wow. Last year, almost a billion, a hundred times as much. And I, I was kind of shocked by that number, in part because the crisis has only worsened. So, what is going so, wrong and why are you convinced that your proposal will, will finally work? Well, let me just say the reason why the city was able to budget so much last time was because of COVID money and COVID money now has gone away. So that's what makes our budget historic in the sense that this is a direct contribution and investment from the city. And I think that one, we have an unprecedented cooperation on every level of government. It's something that I campaigned on. I wanted to have every level of government in alignment with the commitment to uh, reduce and end homelessness. So we do have unprecedented cooperation on every level of government. We also have significant cooperation from the private sector. So we are trying to lay the foundation and set the stage for what I hope will be a very significant reduction, especially in street homelessness this year. I'd like to turn to your other big priority, which is public safety. The LAPD has about 9,000 officers down from about 10,000 before the pandemic. And the headline of your proposal, at least one of them, is that you want to get those numbers back up, not quite that high, but closer by hiring hundreds of new officers to replace the ones who have left and who are expected to continue leaving in the next year. Why do you think more officers for LAPD is necessary? Well, I do think that we have to do both things at the same time. So the idea that we're down almost, you know, a thousand officers, and I anticipate a very serious exodus, not just because of attrition, but because of all of the information that was released to the public. And we have hundreds of officers that work in confidential settings, and I'm worried that many of those officers will have to leave just to protect themselves and their families. You're referring to a leak of sensitive personal information that was published by a an advocacy group that's critical of police here in the city of Los Angeles. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I am very happy that crime has been on the downturn in Los Angeles, not in every category. We have, you know, an increase in homicides, especially in the inner city area. So I'm also calling for attention paid to that because 50 percent of the homicides are solved. But at the same time, as we don't want to have hemorrhaging within our police department, I've also started the Office of Community Safety. We can do both things at the same time. We want to build up the infrastructure within our city so that we can address some of the problems so that we don't need law enforcement officers. For example, when officers go into the academy, I don't think they're going to address homelessness, substance abuse, and other aspects of poverty. And we know that there's a lot of calls, in particular mental health, that really don't require an armed response. Well, it's fine to say you want an unarmed response, but you have to build out the infrastructure so that you actually have the individuals that can respond to those calls. Crimes like homicides and robberies are still somewhat elevated compared with before the pandemic, but they're down significantly 
over the last year, mm-hmm. despite the fact that in this same time period, you have lost a lot of police officers in the LAPD. I wonder if you think that suggests, as a lot of police critics argue, that more police is not what actually improves public safety. Well, I, I agree with that if, if your strategy is just more police. My strategy will never be just more police. That's why I'm explaining that at the same time I'm saying we don't want our law enforcement to hemorrhage We also want to build up the Office of Community Safety. Now, one thing about crime, and I've been studying crime trends for the last three decades, crime cycles. It goes down, it comes back up. Now, we would hate to have happen when crime goes back up, which it will, that then the blame is, well, you allowed the police department to hemorrhage and you focused all of your time on non-law enforcement solutions. You absolutely need both at the same time. Homelessness and public safety are not, as you said earlier, issues solved overnight or even in a year. But um, what should Angelinos expect to notice in their neighborhoods over the next year? Well, I hope that they notice far less encampments. And let me just say that I feel confident that we could house everybody in the encampments if we had enough hotel rooms and if we could expedite the building of housing, we need a place for people to go so that they do not have to languish, languish on our streets. We need a permanent infrastructure of interim housing. We need to expedite the building of affordable housing and permanent supportive housing. And in addition, two other things that we need that are critically important. We need resources for substance abuse and mental health. Unless we develop the method of addressing this problem on the scale in which we experience it, we're not going to be able to end homelessness. So I'm putting money into the city, making a direct contract with nonprofit drug programs and mental health programs so that we don't have to worry about federal restrictions and we can put people in substance abuse beds when they are ready and we don't have to worry about them being restricted to 30, 60, or 90 days of treatment. That was Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass. Mayor Bass, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Joy and Pandemic. A new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco, now playing at the Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org. And BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. The time is 518, coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute. Hip-hop has a history of anti-establishment and progressive politics, but now it's taking a conservative tune. That's at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Long Hill in Beverly hosting world-renowned garden experts in a spring garden symposium May 6th and 7th. More at thetrustees.org slash Long Hill Symposium.
The U.S. Embassy in Khartoum says it's closely monitoring the fighting in Sudan and is advising U.S. citizens to shelter in place and not try to get to the embassy because it isn't safe to travel. The violence erupted last weekend between the army and a paramilitary group fighting for control. More than 400 civilians have died. Hundreds more are injured. Alabama's governor has replaced the director of early childhood education. Kay Ivey forced Barbara Cooper out over the use of a teacher training book. Ivey says teaches what she calls woke concepts because of language about inclusion and structural racism. And celebrations and programs are taking place in cities around the world marking Earth Day. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from the University of Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments, buffalo.edu slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. Around the world today, many people are marking Earth Day, calling for urgent action to reverse catastrophic climate change. It isn't just about protecting the planet for humans, of course. That is a North Atlantic right whale. They're highly endangered, and several years ago, they disappeared from the waters off the coast of Maine, where they're normally found. Now scientists are linking that to mysterious changes that begin thousands of miles away. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk takes us there. On a warm summer day, the surface of Greenland is alive. So this water is just coming from the surface of the ice sheet, which is melting all the time. So we saw lower down... Andrew Sol is a researcher at the University of Sheffield. We're in West Greenland, and there's ice as far as we can see. It forms craggy peaks, deep crevasses, and it's all liquefying. The meltwater gathers, forms little rivulets, little streams, and they all feed into a main river. A river on top of the ice. And that river suddenly disappears. It drops into a dark, somewhat terrifying crack in the ice, basically a hidden waterfall. Now, where it's going is to the bed of the ice sheet. Greenland is melting more and more as the climate gets hotter. It's losing 280 billion tons of ice a year. And that melt is going to speed up. But by how much? That's what Sol is here studying. Uh, what is it, 200 milliliters? Yeah. 200 milliliters. Okay, go for it, Ryan. His research team is tracking this meltwater by releasing a colorful, non-toxic dye. So now the whole river downstream of Ryan has turned a really fluorescent, bright pink. And it's, to be honest, quite a surreal sight, uh, surrounded by the lovely white ice and the sort of blue turquoise color of the water. This meltwater pours to the bottom of the ice sheet and flows underneath it, building up the pressure. What happens under the ice is that water pressure is sufficient to lift the ice or to reduce the friction at the base of the ice to speed it up. That means the ice sheet moves faster at certain times of year, sliding towards the Atlantic Ocean. 
And that's where it can have huge consequences. Greenland is at the crux of a crucial ocean current, one that controls what it's like in the ocean and on land. It's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC for short. The AMOC has been depicted as a conveyor belt. Amy Bauer studies ocean currents at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Here's how this giant ocean conveyor belt works. The current carries warm water from the equator up the east coast of the U.S. all the way to Greenland. That's where the salty water cools off. It gets heavy and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And then go back towards the equator, down deep, carrying that cold water, kind of a return flow. This giant conveyor belt can carry more water than 8,000 Mississippi rivers. And it's powered by that sinking that happens near Greenland. But that's also where more fresh water is pouring into the ocean from all that melting ice. Fresh water is like, I don't want to sink. I don't want to sink. I'm very light. <laughs> I don't want to sink. So fresh water tends to inhibit this sinking motion. If the sinking gets weaker, the whole ocean current could slow down. There are signs that's already happening, though some scientists say it needs to be studied longer to be certain. And when currents change, it can cascade through the whole ocean. It's late summer, and scientist Philip Hamilton is searching for North Atlantic right whales. It's our fourth night at sea. It's been a challenging trip so far. He knows most of the whales individually by name. That's because there are only 340 of them left. And for decades, he's tracked them with a team from the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life. We've only been able to find about 20 whales in this large area, and we're expecting to find more like 70 or 80. Normally, Hamilton would be on the water in the Gulf of Maine during the summer. But around 2015, the whales began disappearing from there. Now he's looking hundreds of miles away in Canadian waters, where some of the right whales have turned up. We saw a calf appears to have a propeller cut on its chin after only eight months of life. Um, pretty distressing. Over a two-year period, 21 right whales were killed in Canada, many hit by ships or tangled in ropes from fishing gear. There were no protections for the whales because no one was expecting them there. But the whales needed to move because they were following their food. I usually just call them bugs, and I think of them as bugs in the water. Erin Meyer Gutbrod is an ecologist at the University of South Carolina. She's talking about a tiny plankton called Calanus finmargicus. Right whales used to feed on them in the Gulf of Maine, but the water there is getting hotter because of shifting ocean currents. It's the kind of change scientists say could only get worse as Greenland keeps melting. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the global ocean. The plankton declined, so whales had to search for them in new places. The Canadian government recently started closing fishing grounds when whales are around to protect them. But they're still dangerously close to extinction, especially as the oceans keep changing. Which puts us all in this state of emergency because then we don't really know where they're going to go, which means that we can't effectively protect their habitat. Meyer Gutbrod says it's not just whales at risk. Changing ocean currents could cause entire ecosystems to shift or die off. We're just entering this time of extreme uncertainty. You know, we can't look at the past and allow that to shape the future because humans have kind of thrown a wrench in what used to be natural processes. She says one hope for the whales and the rest of the ecosystem is to protect them by predicting these changes ahead of time, to know what might happen. 
And to do that, scientists need to better understand how climate change could be setting off this cascade, from hotter oceans to shifting ocean currents, and ultimately to how a huge hunk of ice sitting on top of Greenland is disappearing increasingly fast. Lauren Summer, NPR News. NPR's Climate Desk is looking at the far-reaching effects of melting ice all this week. You can catch more of their stories online at npr.org slash icemelt. Civil rights trails across the South have proven to be an economic driver for some communities. In Mississippi, there's a push to better tell that civil rights history, and the federal government is getting involved. We turn now to NPR's rural affairs correspondent, Kirk Sigler, and Debbie Elliott, who covers the South. They report there is a sense of urgency in getting this work done before memories fade and landmarks are lost. We start our journey on a remote country highway running along the railroad tracks in Money, Mississippi. There's a lone historical marker on the side of the road, but at first it's unclear just why it's here. Okay, you've brought me to this... uh crumbled structure that's got vegetation all over it. Nature's taken over. Why? So this is what's left of Bryant Grocery. This store is where Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black teenager visiting from Chicago, allegedly flirted with the white female shopkeeper in 1955, a violation of the Jim Crow Code. Days later, his disfigured body, beaten, shot, and bloated, was pulled from the Tallahatchie River. The brutal killing sparked the modern civil rights movement. But this key building in the Emmett Till story is close to collapsing. We're in the heart of the Mississippi Delta in the northwest part of the state, where cotton and soybean farms stretch as far as the eye can see. It's easy to miss a lot of these important landmarks. Right here in the barn there, he was beaten. Uh, and then taking on what we call the Teal Trail of Terror. This is Johnny Thomas, the longtime mayor of the tiny all-black town of Glendora. We're outside of the museum he founded here in an old cotton gin on property that was once owned by one of Emmett Till's murderers. He takes us to a nearby abandoned bridge, grass grown up all around. This is the Black Bayou. This is the way the route they would say that the body took. Thomas says this spot where the bridge span is severed is thought to be where they dumped Emmett Till into the Black Bayou with the weight of an industrial cotton gin fan strapped to his back. We say here Emmett's body broke the bridge, the weight that broke the bridge. This is one of several chilling, significant sites in the Emmett Till story. But the only thing a lot of them have in common are roadside historical markers for the Mississippi Freedom Trail. Federal money now coming in is giving some momentum to build up the tourism infrastructure here. But it's a tall order. While there is a major state civil rights museum in the capital city, Jackson, a lot of these little delta towns with big claims to America's civil rights history are spread out over a 250-mile expanse. A recent study by the National Park Service noted there's not enough context or investment. Johnny Thomas is encouraged by efforts in Congress to create a federally run Emmett Till National Historic District, linking all these sites and putting them in context. Well, the significant for this community would be transforming. I mean, we've 
the oldest community in the county and we look like the oldest community in the county. We've been left behind. We're not benefiting uh, as we should with this history. Almost everyone in Glendora lives below the federal poverty line, the same as it was when Thomas was a kid and he's 69. Across the Delta, the land and wealth remain largely in the hands of the minority white population. Some think civil rights tourism could help lift these little towns, so long as the people at the heart of the story are in charge of the narrative. Rolando Hertz runs the Delta Center for Culture and Learning at Delta State University. I think that's part of the concern that we see now with civil rights heritage tourism now on the rise. It's African-American civil rights, but who will be in control of that story, who will be benefiting from the stories that are being told. Hertz is working with local communities to highlight this history through the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area, a National Park Service program that's brought millions in federal grants. And he says there's a sense of urgency to preserve and interpret these civil rights sites before key people and places are gone. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Felicia King walks into a fragile clabbered house near downtown Indianola, Mississippi. A tarp covers the roof, and inside, the floorboards are rotting away. My grandfather built this house. Uh, my dad's dad, Estill Ty King. She always thought this was just a rental house, but after she inherited it, she learned it was actually once the headquarters for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during its Freedom Summer campaign in the mid-60s. That was some dangerous times um, to be in the Mississippi Delta <laughs> trying to get uh, black people educated on their rights to vote and to vote. You know, that was, that was people, they killed people behind that. Many Freedom Houses like this were bombed or burned down. King is using a Park Service grant to stabilize this home so it won't be lost. She's been pondering why, growing up, she never heard about the role her grandfather in this house played in the civil rights movement. And the answer is because it's painful. Not it was painful, it's painful to talk about. King hopes the next generation can take inspiration from how what happened in Mississippi changed the course of American democracy. We have history here. We, we matter. We're important. We, we have value here. You feel that same pride over in Mound Bayou, a nearby town founded by former slaves. Daryl. Debbie Elliott. Good Debbie, to meet good you. Good to meet you. Hi, I'm Kirk. Kirk. Senior. Nice to meet you. Debbie and Kirk. I'm Daryl. Daryl Johnson and his brother Herman have used a grant from the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area to amass an eclectic collection of Americana in an old high school band room. Enslaved people had a vision, and in that vision they came and they founded Mount Bayou, here in the most inhospitable state in the country. During Jim Crow, the town thrived as a center for black enterprise with its own hospital, insurance companies, newspapers. Though, like much of the Mississippi Delta, Mound Bayou is not thriving today. Daryl Johnson says new investment in civil rights tourism could be a boost locally, but more importantly, help heal a divided people. If we tell this story, we can help a whole nation and the whole world in understanding who the United States is. And in Delta towns like Mound Bayou, they're counting on this. I'm Kirk Sigler. And I'm Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Mound Bayou, Mississippi. 
This is NPR News. Earthquakes are what experts refer to as no-notice events. Earthquake alert systems can only give people seconds of warning, which is significant if you're a bus driver pulling over the bus or a surgeon putting down the scalpel. Beyond that, earthquake prep needs to happen in advance if you live in an area that's prone to them. LifeKit's Claire Marie Schneider has tips from experts on how you can prepare for an earthquake. Let's start with what not to do during an earthquake. A lot of people believe that you can go stand in the doorway, and, and that's actually not correct. That's Crisanta Gonzalez. She's an emergency management coordinator for the city of Los Angeles. She says if you feel the ground start to shake, don't run to a doorway. That guidance is outdated. According to the Earthquake Country Alliance, in many modern homes, doorways are no stronger than any other part of the house and will not protect you. So what should you do? Get under the desk and drop, cover, and hold. Drop, cover, and hold on. Immediately, find a stable piece of furniture and get underneath it in the event of an earthquake. Hold on to the leg of the table or desk if you can, and use your other hand to cover the back of your head and neck. Of course, we're not always going to be near a desk or a table, or maybe you physically can't get underneath one because, for instance, you use a wheelchair. Regardless of your individual needs or where you are when an earthquake happens, if you can, cover your head and neck to prevent injury from flying objects or debris. But there's also lots you can do before an actual earthquake hits to prepare as well. One of the best things that you can do uh, is to make a plan for yourself or your family because it doesn't cost any money. That's Alyssa Provencio. She teaches emergency management at the University of Central Oklahoma. Even if you live alone, talking to your friends or your neighbors about what is it you're going to do, how are you going to communicate, where are you going to go, what kind of backups do you have? What if you wake up in the middle of the night to an earthquake and your house gets damaged? Who will you stay with? Or what happens if you're at work and your kids are at school? Alyssa says to create a meeting point. The more complex a plan is, the more likely it's going to fail. So keep it simple and make sure everybody can remember it. Think the post office by your house, the McDonald's down the street. Your phone might not be working after an earthquake, so a meeting point is key. You also might have to evacuate if an earthquake happens. Maybe your home is damaged to the point it's not safe to be in, in which case you'll want to gather supplies for a go bag. Everyone in your household should have one, and go bags should have enough food, clothing, and supplies to last at least three days. Almost think about, like, what would I need if I was going camping for a weekend where I wasn't going to have water and power, uh, just everything that I would need to really survive that weekend. That's Mark Benthian at the Southern California Earthquake Center. Benthian and other experts I talked to recommended keeping closed-toed shoes under your bed, heavy-duty gloves to pick up debris, a flashlight in case the power goes out, and maybe a hand crank radio to make sure you're getting local updates in case your phone isn't working. You also want to think about items that are specific to you. Think about medications you'll need, pet food for any pets, and if you wear glasses, pack an extra pair. But be wary of weight. I've heard of people making these very elaborate go bags, but then they can't carry it. And it sort of doesn't do you any good to have all of that if you can't even walk 10 feet out of your door. So make sure that your go bag is actually a go bag. For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Claire Marie Schneider. For more Life Kit, go to npr.org slash lifekit.
This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Hope you didn't pack away the winter quote coat quite yet. It's raw and chilly out there right now. Gray skies, only 50 degrees. Showers likely tomorrow, a chance for some thunderstorms as well. Highs in the mid-50s and much of the same for Monday and Tuesday. Join us Sunday, April 29th at City Space for an afternoon concert featuring a mix of classical, jazz, and Syrian folk music. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust, welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, now open. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Emmanuel Music with Urbanity Dance, presenting This Love Unbound, April 29th and 30th, directed and choreographed by Shura Barishnikov. Emmanuelmusic.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Japan's defense minister today ordered the country's military to prepare to shoot down any parts of a North Korean spy satellite that fall within Japan's territory. That includes making arrangements to deploy troops to Okinawa to minimize damage if a ballistic missile fell. President Biden says his administration will continue to defend the FDA's approval of the abortion drug Mifepristone. This after the Supreme Court yesterday ruled the drug will remain available while its use is being litigated. And Belgian customs agents destroyed more than 2,000 cans of Miller beer because of the company's branding, calling it the champagne of beers. That's not allowed in the EU because only actual champagne can use that name. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. The fighting in Ukraine has been especially intense in the eastern Donbass region, where Russia is trying to consolidate control. While a fierce nine-month battle over the town of Bakhmut still rages, towns near the besieged city are bracing. If Bakhmut falls, they know they could be next on the path of Russian forces. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley sends this report from one such town in Donbass. People in the town of Slovyansk, about 25 miles from Bakhmut, are tired and tense. Air raid sirens are constant, most businesses are shuttered, and half the town has left. Stray dogs roam the city center. Mr. Lyak, hello, my card again. The last time I met Slovyansk mayor Vadim Lyak was the day before the invasion, February 23, 2022. Today he's no longer the smiling, energetic man from a year ago. Lyak's face is lined and haggard. What can I say? The year was difficult. 
We haven't had a day off. We faced different challenges at different times. To keep infrastructure in working condition, we didn't have heat or water for three months. To keep our citizens safe, to evacuate people when they were shelling, to provide food, and to just defend our city. He says last spring and summer, Slovyansk was constantly shelled as the Russians advanced from three directions. But things improved in September after the Kharkiv counteroffensive, when Ukraine punched through Russian defenses and took back huge swaths of territory. As nearby towns like Liman and Izium were liberated, the Akh says people returned to Slovyansk. But now he's fearful again. Так. Today, Russian forces are being held back in this town. But we feel the enemy pushing because we and our neighboring town of Kramatorsk were recently shelled from multiple rocket systems. This is an alarm signal. But Liach, like many others NPR talked to, firmly believes that Ukraine will ultimately prevail in this conflict. A giant statue of Vladimir Lenin used to stand on the central square in Slovyansk. It was taken down in 2014 after Ukrainian troops liberated the city from a brief occupation by Russian-backed separatists. You speak English? No. No, okay. How, how old are you? She's young. 24-year-old Anastasia, who's pushing her toddler in a stroller, says the constant air raid sirens make her nervous. She doesn't want to give her last name because of the precariousness of the situation. She says she can't talk long because if her husband knew she was in the risky city center, he'd be furious. Of course we are worried. We watch the news. My husband has a job and we will try to stay. But if the front line starts moving, we will definitely not sit and wait. Residents here say they're waiting to see whether Bakhmut falls and also waiting for the much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. 60-year-old Konstantin is sitting on a bench near a monument dedicated to the Soviet Union's decade-long war in Afghanistan. He was a sniper with the Soviet army in that war. When we ask him who should win this one, he says he just wants peace. But when we ask if Ukraine should give up territory for peace, he is categorical. Hello. Hello. Tetyana Tsivskovska is coming across the main square with her two children. The 36-year-old has long nails painted in Ukrainian yellow and blue. She says her family left Slovyansk last April but returned in December. How long can we wander the world? We wanted to come home. Tsivkovska says indifference and ambiguity about Russia in this Russian-speaking region has always been Ukraine's problem. But she believes everything changed in one night last year. We went to sleep February 23rd, she says, using the Russian word for February. And we woke up on February 24th, using the Ukrainian word for the month. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Slovyansk. The city of Brownsville, Texas, population 188,000, doesn't have a bookstore, not a single one. But that is about to change. After a dozen years with no place to buy a book, a longtime resident has decided to take matters into his own hands and open a bookstore. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports from Brownsville. Elizabeth Street in downtown Brownsville is the most well-known street in town. 
It's where parades and festivals are held, and now in the 102-year-old Calderoni building, it's home to Buo Bookstore. Hi, welcome. Founder Gilbert Hernandez is a 27-year-old Brownsville native. He left town after high school to pursue an engineering degree in Massachusetts. After graduating, he came back home and started Buo, which is Spanish for owl. But why is an engineer opening a bookstore? Well, engineers solve problems, and this has been a problem that has been very prevalent amongst Brownsville readers for the past 12 years. Brownsville hasn't had a bookstore since 2011, after the city's last one closed. The closest bookstores are at least 45 minutes away in three neighboring towns. Though Buo now takes up half a city block, it started as a pop-up market, with Hernandez setting up tables and using rolling book carts around town. I would sometimes get lines, even as a little pop-up shop because the thirst was that much for a bookstore in Brownsville. Most of Buo's books are secondhand or donated, costing around $10 to keep them accessible. Literacy rates in the region are some of the lowest in the country, and Hernandez sees his store as something that can only help. I'm convinced that it's not because the people here just don't like reading, but uh, because they just may not have the appropriate outlet to pursue this as a hobby. The COVID pandemic didn't help. The local library system says people checked out 700,000 books annually pre-pandemic. Last year, it was just 300,000. Brownsville Public Library Director Juan Guetta says illiteracy is an issue, and having more books available to people will make a difference. I would hope that it goes higher. because that's, that's our goal, isn't it? For everybody to be literate. So like my parents, my, parents, my dad is illiterate. So I can attest to that. But our goal, or the reason for us to be here, and as a, as a parent, a teacher, as a librarian, as a director, is to encourage literacy so it can go higher. For now, Buo is open sporadically. If you happen to walk by the storefront on Elizabeth Street, the lights are on and Hernandez is inside, the store's open. I love that it's here. Like I said, I think books like these are hidden gems, hidden treasures. For Brownsville resident Carla Arellano, the rare titles on Buo's shelves are what keep her coming back. And she's just happy to have a bookstore in town again. I think words are invaluable there. They can be immeasurably insightful and wonderful. And wisdom itself is priceless to me. Priceless. So if I can find a very perspective that opens my eyes and my heart and my mind, I'm grateful. And that's why I come here. Ariano says that though just about anything can be found online, a bookstore makes you take your time to search for writing that can shift your perspective, something that more people here now have the chance to do. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in Brownsville, Texas. Chances are you know Danny Trejo's work as an actor. He's known for portraying tough guys in films like The Machete Franchise, from Dusk Till Dawn, Con Air. If you go way back, you remember him from the classic L.A. gang film Blood In, Blood Out. But in addition to his decades-long acting career, food and cooking are also a big part of Danny Trejo's life. Here in Los Angeles, he's got several successful Mexican restaurants, a cantina, and a coffee and donut shop. Now Danny Trejo has a new cookbook where he explains his love for food, community, and his hometown, L.A., It's called Trejo's Cantina, Cocktails, Snacks, and Amazing Non-Alcoholic Drinks from the Heart of Hollywood. And Danny Trejo is with me now to talk more about the book and what inspired it. Danny Trejo, welcome. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm excited to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure 
This is a, a book of recipes for uh, cantina food. About half is food, but the other half is recipes for cocktails and drinks. But you, yeah. you don't drink. You've been sober yeah. for what, forty uh -huh. years now? Fifty years. Yeah, I know. I uh, I dedicated this book to the uh, non-drinking community, the you know, recovery community. But it has some great recipes, and I have my favorite of all times. You know, my uh, fight night nachos. Which are like uh, just perfect for you know guys over to watching the fights or a football game, and we do our nachos special because every time people make nachos, you always run out of the top uh -huh. before, and then you just got a whole plate of chips down at the yeah. bottom that nobody <laughs> wants to eat. So what we did was we put a bed of chips and then a. Um, up top of the topping and then another bed of chips and a top of topping so what you have is a full meal and which is just the way it should be done right yeah right for breakfast i just put two eggs over easy on top of that <laughs> and i got breakfast what got you into cooking well you know what my mom was an unbelievable cook when uh i was in the universities in california and, uh, when you talk, wait, when you say the University of California, you're talking about San Quentin, Folsom, <laughs> uh, the prisons. Yeah, yeah. You spent some yeah. time in prison uh -huh. in the '60s. This is well known part of your your life story. Yeah, and, and you know it's so funny. There's a friend of mine, a guy named Clifton Collins, who is actually Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez's uh, grandson. And Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez was one of the first Latinos in movie. He was he was uh, John Wayne's sidekick all the time, and he developed a book. It's called Ramen, and it's all the recipes from different penitentiaries that guys used to make top ramen. There's some great recipes in there, and those were all the ones. Because when me and him were talking, we gave him our recipes. You know. Wait, and, so you uh, were telling me about about how in yeah. prison you would bring all this stuff down to the yard? Yeah, and put everything together and mix it up and make you know top ramen with egg and hot dogs and cheese and and you make a nice casserole, you know. And uh, everybody loved it, so we just brought it out to the streets. And uh, me, I brought it. You know, into my restaurants. <laughs> you pepper this book with a lot of the lessons that you learned about cooking while in prison. Right. And, and maybe not even just about cooking, but about, you know, the role that food plays in our lives. How do those lessons from prison show up in this cookbook? I did a movie called Machete. And in it, actually, uh, Jessica Alba says a quote. She said, says something that I was, we were talking about. She says, my Walita always says, you know, don't have any problem without eating a good meal. It's tough to make a good decision if you're hungry. It's tough to be in a good mood if you're hungry. So it's like, you know, like you have to celebrate food. You have to celebrate life, you know, and, uh, and food and life go together. A big part of your book is what you call the Holy Trinity, cilantro, <laughs> onion, and lime, which are a big part of a lot of Mexican food. And I have to be honest with you. I cannot stand raw onion. And so I have had to get through being a Mexican without eating when, raw onions. You, raw, raw onions? I like cooked onions. Yeah, that I can do. Myself. But raw onion, I can't. And it's in everything. So every time I go yeah. and order a burrito, I have to say, sin cebolla, you know, no onion. Cook my onions, you and me. You know, I love cooked Everything, I love everything cooked. And it's like 
I think the only thing I'd ever eat would be one of my danger dogs. I'll eat chopped onion on that, you know, but I like, uh, you know, just just cooked a little bit. I noticed that there was no recipe in this book for guacamole, but I have a like very important question for you about guacamole. Mm-hmm. Because whenever my dad calls up like all of his kids and his brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles to come over to the house because he's making carne asada, I am the guy who gets tasked with making the guacamole. They hand me the molcajete, the mortar and pestle, because I learned to make it from my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And it's a really simple recipe where you ground raw garlic into the into the into the molcajete. Yes, yes, yes. And ground in some toasted uh-huh. jalapenos, the aguacate, and a little bit of salt on top. Yeah. No raw onion, no raw, no diced tomato. Yeah. I see raw onion and diced tomato and guacamole every yeah. now, where now. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Our recipe for guacamole was in our first book. And we have probably some of the best guacamole in LA. And uh we do it with a little ground up jalapeno, like like your grandma, and I absolutely love it. But uh, yeah, I don't have no onion. In no it. onion, right? Good, <laughs> good. <laughs> You're one of mine. That's one of the los míos. I'm glad to know that Danny Trejo and I have the same taste in guacamole. Yes. Well, Danny Trejo, in addition to cooking, I understand you've got another new venture. It's a a new record label, Trejo's Music, and you've got a new album which includes this song called Outlaw. Let's listen to a little bit of it. From San Jose to East LA I'm a motorcycle rider A highway flyer I'm an outlaw, baby Just an outlaw <laughs> Tell me a little bit about this song. Yeah, you know what? I started the regular label, so we put a studio in my garage and and I was on the microphone and I was singing and Baby Bash came over and he was listening to me and says, let's put that on the album. I go, Dad, I'm not a singer. He goes, it's, that's not a voice song, that's a sing song. So we put it on, it did it really well. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not switching careers, so don't worry, fans. <laughs> You'll stick to cooking, it sounds like. Cooking and acting. I've been speaking with Danny Trejo, his new cookbook, Trejos Cantina, cocktails, snacks, and amazing non-alcoholic drinks from the heart of Hollywood is out now. Danny Trejo, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From San Jose.